So as we've seen in this sermon series through the book of Amos, there's a heavy amount of judgment going on. Amos is a, is a prophet who is announcing God's message to the people of Israel. And you might not have understood all the imagery in that passage that John just read, but you can probably get the basic idea. There's judgment again. But last week, when Pastor Micah preached, we saw in the midst of this heavy judgment that there was an offer of grace. Going back to Amos 5, 14 and 15, Amos said, Seek the Lord and live. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord God of hosts will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Israel. What's interesting is that seeking of the Lord that is described in Amos chapter 5 is not simply vertical. If the Israelites were to take this offer of grace and and turn from their ways, then seeking the Lord would also demonstrate itself ethically and horizontally in the hatred of evil, the love of good, and the establishment of justice. When we go back to Amos 5 verse 7, they were rebuked. In Amos 5, 7, because it says, O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. Wormwood is a bitter poison. So in chapter 5, God was extending his grace and giving an opportunity to the Israelites to change their ways and repent. But we don't see any indication that they moved on that offer. So now as we move into 5, 18 through 6, 14, which John just read, we see the prophet pronounce three different proclamations of woe. We see Amos pronounce woe in 5.18, in 6.1, and in 6.4. This is not woe like you're trying to slow down or what you say to a horse. This is woe, W-O-E. A woe is an exclamation of grief or lament. It's, it's what you would hear at a funeral, woe. It's an expression, expression of lament given because of spiritual darkness. If you go in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus actually pronounces seven woes on the scribes and Pharisees. Those, words are, those woes are indicative of their spiritual condition. So today we're going to look at these three woes pronounced on the Israelites, and I'm going to tell you the big idea right out front. If you have a right relationship with God, then you will also love justice and righteousness. If you have a right relationship with God, then you will also love justice and righteousness. Now let's start to look at this passage and we'll see how that's true. So woe number one, this first woe is for religious activity with no concern for justice and righteousness. We could call this syncretistic religion, fake religion, hypocrisy. Let's start to look at 5, 18 through 20. Amos says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? And gloom with no brightness in it. You'll notice that phrase, the day of the Lord, is used three times. 
in verses 18 through 20. Amos is the first prophet who used that phrase, but it's used throughout the OT prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Zephaniah, Malachi, all of them refer to the day of the Lord. So broadly speaking, this is the day when God will intervene and he will put Israel at the head of the nations. That is how the Israelites would have conceived of the day of the Lord. It was the day they anticipated. They looked forward to it. And yet we see in this passage, Amos is telling them, you should not be looking forward to this, given your spiritual condition. You should not be anticipating God's visitation. It's going to be darkness and not light. You don't want this. There are word pictures here of a lion, a bear, a serpent. And they're giving this idea of unexpected and unavoidable danger that will come upon them suddenly. The reality is, for the Israelites, God is intensely opposed to their behavior. We get a picture in Amos that the people he is speaking to are busy in their religious observances without sincere hearts and without love for neighbor. Look at the repetition, if you will, in verse 21 and 22 of God's disgust. Verse 21 and, 18, 21 and 22. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. It's a very deliberate and direct expression of disgust. When you see a person receive a gift, if it's Christmas or a birthday, sometimes you have to, have you had this experience, you have to read between the lines a little bit to figure out if they actually like it. Because if they're polite, they're probably going to say, oh, thank you. And you kind of have to read into the tone a little bit. And if they say thank you, then it's hard to know whether you've given something that they will actually appreciate. But have you ever seen someone take a gift, unwrap it, open it up, look at it, and say, I hate that. I despise that. Well, you probably haven't seen that, but that's exactly what's going on here. The people are falsely assuming that God is taking pleasure in their feasts and sacrifices and offerings. Again, we can see by the repetition that these were not sincere expressions of worship. Look at the repetition of the word your in this passage. Look how God describes what they're doing. Your feasts, your solemn assemblies, your burnt offerings, your grain offerings, your peace offerings, your songs, your melodies, your fed animals. It's for you is what God's saying. The idea here is that, that these are the people's religious expressions. They're not God's. So we could say it like this. It's self-centered worship. Now, now, in the Old Testament, these feasts and offerings were prescribed by the Old Testament law. So the point is not that they were irrelevant or should not be observed. The point is that they were meant to be an outward expression of an inner spiritual reality, an expression of a heart oriented towards God. So what's missing? What's missing? It's not more observances. It's not more songs. What's missing is relational and ethical. Look at 23 through 24. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. 
But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What was missing here was justice and righteousness. Without that, God took no delight in the people's sacrifices or feasts. Now, I'm aware the word justice makes people nervous today. So we need to understand justice in a biblical sense. But first, before we do, what was the injustice going on? We've seen it described throughout the book of Amos. So I'll summarize it quickly. Poor people are being taken advantage of. There are unethical business dealings. People are taking bribes. There's oppression of the weak. Instead of being generous with their resources, the rich are turning aside the needy. This is the injustice that is rampant in their society. Justice, by contrast, is upright behavior in relation to those around you. In chapter 5-7, we see this image of justice being turned to wormwood or poison. A good man, a just man, loves what is good, and when people experience him or are in his orbit, they taste and experience that goodness. They get a little sample of God's perfect government of the world through the justice and integrity of that man. And instead in Israel, when the weak encountered the strong, when they had a chance to encounter and taste the goodness of God's government, they experienced the bitter poison of wormwood. And notice that the image of justice and righteousness cascading down like an ever-flowing stream, it's an image of the Godward life because love of God and love of neighbor, love of God and love of justice are connected. Our family was at Letchworth last weekend. So, of course, we stopped at the middle and upper falls. Every time I go to Letchworth State Park, I'm mesmerized by the beauty and the power of the waterfalls. And as we stood at the ledge and watched the water tumble over, one of my kids asked me a great question. He said, Dad, when does it stop? When does it stop? Of course it doesn't stop. It never stops. How could you stop it? The water is on an inevitable course over the falls. It keeps on falling. It always has. It has been falling long before any of us were born. If you ever went to Letchworth or Niagara Falls and the water had stopped, the water was not falling, you would think the apocalypse was coming. It would be a sign that something was seriously wrong. Something was disconnected. And here's the point. Genuine love of God flows into genuine love of neighbor, into right treatment of others, just as inevitably as the water goes over the falls. If you have a right relationship with God, you will love justice and righteousness. So for the Israelites to sing their songs and hold their feasts and offer their sacrifices, all the while treating people around them with contempt, that was repulsive to God. It meant something was fundamentally wrong. Something was broken. Now today, today we get, into, we get nervous about justice conversations because some of you immediately think about social justice and that immediately sets you off. But let's just park right here and dwell on this very simple reality. Justice matters to God. It's a reflection of his character. 
and devotion to God will demonstrate itself in our ethics. It will demonstrate itself in the way that we treat people. Now, loving justice often gets conflated with very specific political positions or governmental positions on a number of issues. And I could just go on and on. It could be affordable housing. It could be prison reform. It could be school debt relief. It could be poverty, educational opportunities, welfare. We could go on forever. Loving justice does not lock you in to a specific, specific political position. But loving God means that you do love justice and righteousness. That means integrity in all of your dealings, and it means love and compassion for your neighbor. So you are allowed to say, I don't agree with this specific position or solution, but not without compassion. We are allowed to disagree or have different positions about political, governmental solutions towards a more just society, but we are not allowed as Christians to live without a love for justice and righteousness. And in fact, the frustration that we do experience in our world should cause us to long even more for the good government of God, who's perfectly just. Now, when we get to the end of Amos 5, we hear of the impending doom that is coming on the nation for their hypocrisy. Amos 5, 25 through 27 says, Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikath, your king, and Kayun, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. The answer to that first question is yes. Israel, harking back to their history, did offer sacrifices and offerings during their wandering in the wilderness. But that did not mean that they were in right relationship with God during those 40 years of wandering. They also made offerings to Sikath and Cayun, which I know that's obscure to us, but those were pagan deities in Mesopotamia. And Amos is saying to these people, those offerings in the wilderness years ago that your parents made, your idolatrous parents made those offerings back then to the star gods, the fact that they also gave observances to Yahweh didn't help them back then. And your religious syncretism is not going to help you either, is what he's saying. What's fascinating and important about this passage is that this is the very first time that Amos get, also gets quoted in the New Testament. This is one of only two times Amos gets quoted in the New Testament. And this passage at the end of chapter 5 is it. It turns up in the book of Acts when Stephen the martyr is preaching. In Acts 7, Stephen the martyr is preaching in front of the most religious people in all of Israel, the elders and scribes. They have him on trial at the temple, accusing him of blasphemy. You might wonder, what is the correlation? So in this setting, Stephen has been teaching and preaching about Jesus. He runs through the whole Old Testament history of Israel in front of a religious audience that knows this history better than anyone. And Stephen essentially tells the elders and scribes 800 years after Amos that they are committing the same sins that their forefathers did. They are putting their own comfort and their own traditions ahead of the true worship of God. And Stephen's saying to them, you're doing it again. You are doing it again. You trust in the te- you're trusting in the temple. You're trusting in your religious rituals. And Stephen tells them, God is going to judge you 
just like the Israelites long ago. God loves justice. God demands true worship, and God will judge his own household when true worship and justice are missing. If you have a right relationship with God, you will love justice and righteousness. There's a second woe in chapter 6. We could call this one complacency. 6, 1 through 3 says this, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountains of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Calna and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. The picture here is of people who are resting and at ease, unaware of their true danger. They had a false confidence in wealth, in good things, in their past military victories. They are resting unaware. And the prophet references places in verse 2, that's what these geographic references are, as cities that had been recently overthrown as a way of making the Israelites look at their false sense of security. Cities, Kalna, Hamath, Gath, they were strong cities that had recently fallen. And Amos says, are you better than these kingdoms? But to the people of Israel, the day of disaster seemed far, far away. They bring near the seat of violence. The day-to-day life that the Israelites are leading is displeasing to God. And confession, repentance, reform, it's not a priority because in their minds, judgment is a long way off. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. And in Amos 6.4, he moves to a third woe. We could call this one self-indulgence. 6, 4 through 6. Self-indulgence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs as to the sound of the harp. And like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest of oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Look at all those images of luxury that are there. The upper-class Israelites are sleeping on beds of ivory, stretched out, lounging on couches, eating lambs and calves, in other words, grade-A beef, right, when others are eating mutton or beef. They're singing idle songs. They're making music. They're having a good time. They're enjoying their historic connection with David with no perception of the spiritual reality behind these songs. They're drinking wine in bowls because a glass isn't enough. They're anointing themselves with the finest of oils. In other words, there's no restraint. There's no moderation. There's, there's just love of luxury and personal comfort. The driving question is just, what do I want? What would make me feel good right now? What would make me happy? There's no grief. There's no repentance. And no awareness or concern for the needs of others. Now, I know some of us like the good things in life. And we think, can't I, can I enjoy these things? Can I work hard? Don't I, don't I deserve some pleasure for all my hard work? Well, what's being addressed here is not that some people have more than others. It's the heart attitude of self-indulgence. The love of luxury can blind us 
to the needs of others. Because what's going on here is like, like imagine sitting in your backyard, heating up your grill, trying to figure out, do I feel like the ribeye or the porterhouse tonight? Meanwhile, your next door neighbor is looking through the cupboards, searching, looking for that one last can of soup. But you're unaware. You can't be bothered. You don't even know. All you, can, all you think about is your own selfish preoccupation with pleasure. That's what's happening here. The rich are enjoying themselves, and what else matters? And here's the conclusion. Amos 6, 7 says, Therefore, therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. In their, in their selfish preoccupation, these Israelites, these upper-class Israelites, have put themselves first again and again, and now they will be the first to go into exile. So there's three woes that Amos pronounces. Fake religion, complacency, self-indulgence. They all come back to this idea of lack of love for neighbor. And the conclusion of all these woes is the destruction that gets described at the end of, or at the end of chapter 6. 6 verse 8, The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. We see just the absolute certainty of judgment when God swears by himself. The fortresses are what Israel really trusts in. They think they're strong. But when Israel thought that they were invulnerable, in the 8th century, God raised up Assyria to overthrow them. In all these... All these woes, they add up to a funeral cry because that's what's really happening. It's the death of the nation. Amos is saying to Israel, you're going to face God's judgment because of your fake religion, your complacency, your self-indulgence. Amos even goes on to use these agricultural images later on in chapter 6 to see, help people see their coming downfall. He says in verse 12, do horses run on rocks? Does one plow with oxen? Does one plow there on the rocks with oxen? but you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Every farmer would see the obvious disaster of running their horses over the rocks or trying to plant crops in a rock pile. And in a similar way, this perversion of justice is creating an inevitable disaster. Israel's being overthrown because they've disconnected the worship of God with the love of neighbor. Okay, so now we say, that's, that's a lot, all those woes. What does it all mean for us? Two things. First, we can see from this passage that true worship of God is going to touch all of life. It can't be isolated into my emotions or my Sunday mornings, or my private spiritual experiences, it's going to have an ethical component. It's going to result in love of neighbor. The point is not that religious observances, be they, be they feasts, offerings, uh, sacrifices in the Old Testament, or be it church attendance or spiritual disciplines in our day and age, it's not that these things don't matter to God. They are an external expression of inner reality. The result of true worship is adoration of God, thankfulness for the gospel, for what Jesus has done, and a commitment to walk with God and to honor him 
in all that we do. Okay, and second, when we hear the command to show justice and righteousness, we cannot reduce the gospel down to simply acts of kindness and showing mercy to others. That is a social gospel. So let's be super clear here. The gospel is not inviting your neighbor over and sharing your stake. The gospel is not feeding the poor or digging wells for clean water. Those are good things, excellent things. They are not the gospel. But let's also be clear. If I believe the gospel, then I believe that God has shown mercy to me as an undeserving sinner. When I was an enemy of God, he has shown me grace when I wasn't seeking God. He has sent his son, Jesus, to suffer in my place for my sin, for all the punishment that I deeply deserve. God is perfectly just and God is perfectly merciful. And I need the mercy of God more than anyone else. God is perfectly just and the Bible says that God is rich in mercy. And if I have grasped that on any level at all, then I must love mercy. Justice and mercy matter to God, and they need to matter to us. And they matter not in a way that shrinks the gospel down, but in a way that embodies it and amplifies it. Because love of God will inevitably flow into love of neighbor, just like the water going over the, going over the falls. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word that you inspired so long ago and is so helpful and challenging and convicting to us today. And I pray, Lord, that we would be people that love justice and love mercy, that walk humbly with you, where love of God and love of neighbor has no disconnect, but that the mercy that you have shown to us would be embodied in our lives. Lord, we pray that our, our worship would be pleasing to you in every way. Lord, we ask that you would hear our prayers and be merciful to us, that your spirit would be at work in us for our sanctification, causing us to see our blind spots and causing us to grow both in pure love for you and in love for neighbor. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Would you now take this time to stand and we will respond to God in song.